0: Now, if you will turn over to Jude, Jude, um, Chapter One. So there's one chapter in Jude, and we'll uh, pray before we go into God's Word. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that we can sit under it and that we can have our wills and our desires changed more and more into uh, the wills and desires of Christ. We thank you for this book of Jude that we, get, we get, begin today. We, we pray that it would be a blessed study, that we would grow in, in our knowledge of you and that you would have us to do and how you would have us to live and to believe and that you would um, create in us a, a deep devotion for the gospel Jesus Christ, that we would love him more as a result uh, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. We will read verses 1 and 2. Jude says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Amen. So a good while ago, we decided to go through First Peter and Second Peter and Jude as kind of a series, as an overview um, of First and Second Peter and Jude, and the. Especially, Second Peter and Jude are uh, profoundly related to one another, and so that's why we're going now into this um, series in Jude because we can kind of tack it on on the end and continue in the same theme and learn more from Jude. And really, I find Second Peter and Jude and First Peter really are all wonderful books in terms of <clears throat> defining who we are as Christians, defining our identity. You know, who who are we in Christ? Who are we in, in unity in the church? And specifically in all these books, what is really our future hope? What's the next thing to come? All of these things are really definitional to who we are as Christians. And Jude is very much the same. Um, and I find Second Peter and Jude to be kind of the flip side of the same coin as a book like Galatians. Where in Galatians we read about the Judaizers and legalism where they're overly rigid about Oh, keeping the law to the point where it's no longer God's law. And here in second Peter and Jude we find um, that he's, they're dealing with antinomianism, the opposite side. this sort of God's law is not applicable because of grace, right that attitude. So there's kind of an opposite uh, sides or the same side <laughs> opposite sides of the same coin. And, of course, we like to talk about freedom. We like to talk about justification by faith alone, and rightly so, right? Those are foundational to the Christian faith. But we're not as quick to talk about duty or sanctification and holiness. And I think it's important to realize that, that I think we often think of those two sides of things. Like we have grace and we have uh, obedience. And we have to be careful because we don't want to put too much weight on obedience because we're kind of tip the scales this way or put too much weight on grace because we'll kind of tip the scales this way we need to keep them in balance right but i think that that's less of a helpful picture i think maybe a better picture is how a battery might run like a little fan where the one flows into the other grace directly flows into obedience and we don't we can't emphasize grace too much nor can we emphasize obedience too much that's why we love Romans, because Romans gives us both sides of the coin. Now, Jude is distinct uh, from Second Peter in that it really is laser-focused on this idea of contention or, or the preservation of the apostolic faith. That is, it focuses on what we believe and are holding firmly to it, specifically in the face of those who would corrupt the grace of God through antinomianism. This key comment, there's a key comment in verse 4 for understanding Jude. It says, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So that's what Jude is dealing with in this book, is those people who would pervert the grace of God and turn it into sensuality. 2 Peter was more focused on the cultivating of Christian character while Jude is focused primarily on our beliefs. And and maybe we could say they both explain the foundation of our faith, but 2 Peter enters more into application. Now Jude is a letter, and we can ask of a letter the questions who, what, when, where, and why. Those are good questions to ask of a letter And I intended to go one through four today, but I started typing up notes and realized I'm not going to have enough time to do one through four. So we're doing who, what, when, where, why part one this morning. And specifically we'll ask the questions who, when, and where this morning and the what and the why next week in in three and four. Um, So let's just read again uh, verses one and two. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So the first question, who? Uh, who's writing here? Who's the author? It says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Jude is is also another spelling for the name Judas. And we have a number of Judes and Judases in the Bible, Famously, Judas the the betrayer, Um, it's not him. There's also another disciple, Thaddeus, who also went by Jude. Um, And then there's this Judas, the brother of Jesus. In Matthew 13, we read that the people ask, Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. So this is Jude, the brother of James. And this is the only Jude that we know of, of note in the Bible, that is the brother of any James of note in the Bible. And he's the half-brother of Jesus. And James here is not the Apostle James, who was martyred in Acts 12, but James, the leader of the early church, who spoke at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, and who wrote the book of James. James. Um, So our author is, um, by all rights, but I don't think anybody really questions Jude, the brother of James and the half-brother of Jesus. And he says he's a servant of Jesus Christ. That's an extraordinary title. That's a title he applies to himself, a servant of Jesus Christ. Many apostles apply this term to themselves, and the word there is, doulos in the Greek and doulos rightly means slave we we have uh, hives about that because of our history in America about the word slave but really doulos does mean slave and slave, slavery in the Roman Empire was uh, a part of life and oftentimes we'll hear people say well it's not like slavery was in America well that only goes so far there's a wide breadth of slavery some of it was terribly wicked And all of it was still the owning of people. Um, That that was a part of slavery. But it was a part of life, and there were some good masters and some bad. But roughly one-fifth of the population in in the Roman Empire was a slave. And Christianity particularly exploded in the poorer classes, which meant that a lot of Christians were, were slaves. Um, James, the brother of Jude, when he writes his letter, he uses the same terminology. James, a servant or slave of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So both of these men, James and Jude, were brothers of Jesus, half brothers of Jesus. You know, I think I like to think of them. They probably worked side by side with Jesus. And, and a lot of times we think of of Joseph as a carpenter like you know, putting nails in into chairs, building chairs and furniture. But in all likelihood he was probably a stonemason. Um, that, that term carpentry had a wider breadth and he lived in Nazareth very near to some, some beautification projects that Herod had going on and they were probably stonemasons. So I think of, of Jude and, and James and Jesus all kind of slaving side by side to you know, rock work is hard work and these guys grew up doing that with their father Joseph. They worked together. Besides this, uh, no one really, I don't think no one is more suspicious of a, of a brother's success than another brother, right? Like my brother knows I'm a screw-up more than anybody else in the world besides my wife and kids, right? They know us so well. But these guys, these men, James and Jew, don't seem to be even comfortable using that word brother of Jesus. They, they don't even want to go there. The word slave is more appropriate to them. And that's really quite dramatic because we read in in John, we read in John 7, he he says, For not even his brothers believed in him. If you read the Gospels, remember at one point Jesus' siblings and even Mary came out and, and they thought he was insane. They went out to get him because they thought he went nuts. They didn't believe in him. And now here we read James and Jude both are calling themselves slaves and even calling Jesus master. have got to think there's some kind of messianic connection with, with this story and with uh, Joseph and his brothers, that one day they would bow down. Uh, they're calling themselves slaves of this man who is their brother. And what is it that, that caused them to shift? They, they saw Jesus face to face for years. What, why didn't they see it then? They, they grew up with the guy. And, of course, we can kind of give the theological answer. We know, right, it's the power of the Holy Spirit working through the Word in their hearts. That's what caused them to change. Uh, but what really happened? What? Why did it happen? What was the means that God used? You know, uh, we don't know. Maybe it's the resurrection or at Pentecost or the preaching of the apostles. We don't know for sure, but we know they were changed. And they came to find the, the power and the majesty and the sovereignty and the saving grace of Jesus to be compelling to them. Jude goes from a suspicious brother to saying at the end of this letter, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. It's a dramatic shift. Going from my brother's a nut to... Jesus to to him be all dominion and authority. What do we make of this shift? I think this shift should be profoundly encouraging to us for a couple of reasons. Um, first is that Jesus Christ is in an overwhelmingly compelling person as a savior and God. Jude sees this man who was his brother in such a light that he no longer calls him brother but he calls him master. For Jude, his relationship to Jesus as master and savior supersedes those bonds of mere brotherhood. Now what, what is it that makes Jesus so compelling? I hope you have all day because that's a question that takes all day, right? Jesus said the whole Old Testament spoke to him. The whole Bible is about him. We could spend years in fact. That really is what we're doing in the church. Why is Jesus so compelling? But just as a few examples, we could think about his miracles, turning water into wine, walking on water, healing people, feeding the 5,000. But you remember, these brothers found him insane when he was doing all of those things. So they weren't really impressed. Or we could look at his teachings. Remember the people said that Jesus taught, not like the scribes, but as one with authority. Or his power, that he created the universe and upholds it by the word of his power. Or his character, he was born under under the law and never sinned. But at the end of the day, we know that the greatest miracles, the greatest teaching, the greatest evidence doesn't change our hearts. At some point, the Spirit opened up Jude's eyes to behold the most beautiful picture a person can behold and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fact that a transcendent God became man to save sinners and that he lived and died that we could have life. That he was crucified, died and was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. God brought all of that before him and what really must have been the most shocking realization of his life that Jesus, his brother, did all those signs that he and we might see and believe and by believing have life in his name. So it's really the gospel of Jesus Christ that makes Jesus so compelling. The second reason that Jude's shift in attitude about Jesus is encouraging is that the Holy Spirit can change the most skeptical of hearts. So we pray for our family members who who maybe sometimes we feel like are outside the realm of hope, these people who have heard the gospel time and time again, it's right in front of their face, like Jesus was right in front of Jude's face the whole time, and they seem hard of heart. They're not outside the realm of hope. The Holy Spirit can work on the most skeptical of hearts. Another lesson we can glean from the example of Jude's Description of himself here as a slave of Jesus is, if if James and Jude were submissive to Jesus in such a way, how much more should we be submissive? If these men were calling themselves slaves, how much more we? I mean, these guys really, if if you'll pardon the, the term, were bigwigs in the early church. They were tight with the apostles in James or James in Acts fifteen. He's not an apostle, he's, he's just a guy, he granted the half-brother of Jesus, but he's not an apostle, and he says at the Jerusalem Council, brothers, listen to me. He's way up there in the church, right? He held weight and authority in the early church, presumably, also, Jude does too, looking at the tone of this letter and his relationship to James. But the point I want to make here is, is, where do they point? What direction do they point? Who is the object of faith? And it's always Jesus, pointing to Jesus, the Master, God, Savior, and Lord. So if they were quick to bend the knee to Jesus, then how much more we? Even to be called a slave. John MacArthur has a book called Slave. It's about this topic. And he, in in that book, has five parallels between ancient Roman slavery and uh, slavery to Christ. And I thought they were really helpful, so I want to go through those real quick. The first is exclusive ownership. Exclusive ownership. Slaves are owned by a single owner. We have this idea in Christianity of redemption. Redemption. We read that we were bought with a price, with the blood of a lamb without spot or blemish. We we're redeemed from the power of sin. In Titus two, fourteen, we read that Jesus gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, who are zealous for good works. So that idea of redeem is this idea of purchase. We were slaves to sin, and He Purchased us with his blood, and now we are in his possession. The second thing he identifies is complete submission. Complete submission. This follows from exclusive ownership. It's a slave's singular mission to accomplish the will of his master. And so that it's not our will, but it's the will of Jesus that reigns supreme. 1 Corinthians 6, we read, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? He says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Co- complete submission, because we don't own ourselves. We submit our wills to the will of the Master. The third thing, singular devotion. <clears throat> The, this exclusive ownership also implies singular devotion because the, the will of another master doesn't matter the will of sin doesn't matter it doesn't it, we are not enslaved to it anymore jesus tells us you cannot serve two masters polycarp in his letter to the uh, i believe it was the philadelphians writes this he says for you know that you have been saved by a gracious gift not from works, but by the will of God, through Jesus Christ. Therefore, bind up your loose robes and serve as God's slaves in reverential fear and truth, abandoning futile reason in the error and that de- <coughs> excuse me in the error that deceives many, and believing in the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead and gave him glory and a throne <coughs> at his right hand. Listen to this. He says, "Everything in heaven and on earth." Is subject to him. Everything that breathes will serve him. He is coming as a judge of the living and the dead, and God will hold those who disobey him accountable for his blood. Notice he says that everything is subject to him. He points that out. All the other masters are are really false masters, and that to be a slave of Christ is to have a singular devotion to the one true master. Fourth thing that, that MacArthur identifies is total dependence. The slave, generally, and in the Roman Empire, was dependent on his master for all his basic needs, housing, food, clothing. Uh, And similarly, we don't don't work as wage earners before God. Like We work and he gives us something in return. But rather, we serve in his household as household slaves of the one we, we love, and he takes care of us. That's the relationship that we have with him. Finally, the fifth thing is personal accountability. So I think of like the slaves who who were given talents to, to invest. They were accountable before their master to do something with what they had. We report to our master. We have responsibility before him. We have personal accountability before him. So all this talk of slavery, that we're slaves may uh, grate on the modern ear. I think it does. Even myself, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with this slave um, speech, but it is good to be a slave of the only good master. To be conformed to the master's will, to have our desires our desires are, are the thing that gets us into trouble. We read that in James. That's why we sin, because our will is corrupt. To have that replaced with the Master's will is so good. Or to obtain this household membership, that we're household slaves in the household of God and that our membership goes beyond slavery and even to adoption as sons. Or that we're redeemed, we're purchased with the precious blood of Christ. Or, and here's a paradoxical one, we are free (laughs) Truly free when we're slaves of Christ. Church Father John Chrysostom has a great quote. He says, Such a thing as Christianity, on slavery it bestows freedom. After all, the real slavery is that of sin. And if you are not a slave in this sense, be bold and rejoice. No one shall have power to do any wrong, having the temperament which cannot be enslaved. But if you are a slave to sin, even though you be ten thousand times free, you have no good of your freedom. So we have true freedom because we have freedom from sin and slavery to Christ. Move, continuing on here with our, our questions, We that was a, a long segment on the who, but he gives us so much richness in just calling himself a slave. But, who, who, the who was answered by Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ. And now we'll look at the question, when? When was this letter written? And uh, Many believe, and I tend to agree, that 2 Peter is a letter that was based on the letter of Jude. So it was probably written before Second Peter. And Peter, Peter died around uh, AD 65, so it had to be before then, if Peter was going to use it. And the apostolic emphasis on grace in Paul's letters particularly uh, came out and was widely circulated around the mid-50s and Galatians perhaps even in the 40s, depending on your view of when that was written. And so because these people, these false teachers that Jude is counteracting were clearly abusing this doctrine of grace, we we can estimate that it was sometime probably in the mid-50s to the early 60s. It's just a quick, interesting op- observation that I noticed this week um, before we move on to the question of where is, is that the canon of Scripture includes a lot of books that are a restatement of other books. It's really striking when you think about it. If you think about Deuteronomy, it kind of rehashes the history of Israel or First and Second Chronicles, rehashes everything. And sometimes we get bored and exasperated. Why does he keep saying this? Or think about the Synoptic Gospels, the most foundational documents to our faith, written three times, right? essentially. Ephesians and Colossians are so strikingly similar, Romans and Galatians. But we have to realize that God doesn't waste words. The things that he writes twice or three times are important doctrines. So this whole consideration, again, Second Peter and Jude, this this idea of antinomianism and the abuse of grace is apparently very serious to God. So we shouldn't be bored by the similarities, but we should really sit up and take note of the similarities. God said, holy, holy, holy. He meant three times holy. Repetition is important to God. All right. The next question: Where? um, Consider the audience here. Really, we can't say with any certainty what genealogical, pardon me, geographical region Jude was writing to. Um, The content is really very Jewish. There's a lot of Old Testament reference and even apocryphal uh, allusions. Um, But really, Jews at that time were scattered all over uh, the Roman Empire, and Jude himself was was a very Jewish author, so we can't say that he was writing to Jerusalem or something like that for for certain. But he does give us a description of his audience here in um, verse 1, and one really a description which represents all Christians everywhere. He says, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ called, beloved, and God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. That's a reassuring description of Christians. Amidst all the insecurity and uncertainty of this world in which we live, we should find our sense of identity in, in these types of descriptions of who we are. And we could post post this phrase next to our desk or on our mirror or in our car. It's a better identity than to say, I'm a pastor or pastor am a mother, or a teacher, or an engineer, right? But to say, I am called, beloved of God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. That's a more foundational identity. To be called is to be chosen and drawn effectively unto Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. It's an effectual calling, and it's also humbling because we realize, I did not redeem myself. And that God has taken me and made me a part of something bigger. The the assembly of the called. That's what the word ekklesia, that we translate church, is is the called out ones. And, and the idea there, I think people use it oftentimes to defend effectual calling. But it's really more to say from what i understand historically as as if we were called out to a meeting like a, a town council or something we're all called to this gathering place and the word is best translated i think assembly we're called unto this assembly we've been brought out into something larger than ourselves and it is the assembly of the beloved as he says we're the beloved of god the father we're adopted children we're not bearing the curse and rejection of sin but we are blessed as one in Christ. It's interesting because really Jesus is truly the only, only beloved one of the Father, isn't he? But we're in Christ, so as such we are beloved of the Father. We have our adoption, our covenant blessedness that we're no longer under the curse and we're the object of God's fatherly affection and even chastisement. And we have uh, security as the beloved of God, which we see here, um, that we're kept. Kept for Jesus Christ. We are, as we said earlier, we are His possession. Not one of us who is truly His will be lost to the devil or taken out of His hand. All the fathers given Jesus are His. We're kept for Him. John 10 My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. We read in Titus that we are his possession. We've already read this verse, but to emphasize it again, who, Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. He, We are his possession and he will not let us go. We are kept for Jesus Christ. This really, I think, sets the tone for this book because he's constantly making this distinction between those who are trying to corrupt the church and corrupt grace and those who are not. We'll read this description of the false teachers, and then the strong, but you, toward the end of the letter, there's this strong distinction. And so, this sets the tone of the book of who we are, that we're called, beloved of God the Father, and kept for Christ. Jude concludes this greeting with, uh, in verse two, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied. To you. It's a fitting greeting. Uh, it's Typically we, we read in the greetings grace, right? Grace be multiplied to you. It's interesting in this book that, that is dealing so much with the issue of grace that he leaves that out and he says mercy. He, he's p- specifically refuting people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. So maybe he's defending against that. Maybe he doesn't want to use the word grace at the beginning to And and rather, he'd choose mercy, peace, and love. I don't know. This corresponds really perfectly to the message of the book. At the end, in in verses 19 through 21, we, we read of these false teachers. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, pray in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So I see in these verses this this theme of peace, mercy, and love. There's those who cause division. They're not peaceful. They do not have the Holy Spirit. But we have the Spirit and we have peace. And thus we can share unity in the body. And mercy. He says, for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. The mercy of Jesus' saving mercy that saw us in our state of sin and misery and had pity on us. And rather than punishment and eternal death, we have eternal life. And then he says, keep yourselves, in verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. Here it is, the love of God for us. And the charge here in in this entire epistle is one to the beloved. They They are warned not to depart the love of God. God's grace for this antinomian living. Here in 21, we see that they are called to stay within the bounds of God's love. In other words, they're not to to depart the community of the beloved of God for for the frivolities of the world. So in verse 2, it's the wishful prayer of Jude that these distinguishing characteristics of God's favor be multiplied to the church. This idea of multiplied, that it be increased, and that we remain and continue to grow in the the community of the beloved and avail ourselves of God and his benefits and of Christ. That we continue to submit to Christ as delighted and redeemed, freed slaves in obedience and gratitude. As we're beginning this book of Jude, I want us to understand with clarity the importance of Christ as our Lord and Master, and as we're slaves of Christ, that we're to be obedient to our Master. But I also want us to understand that this truly is the most joyous and blessed position a man could find. In submission to the will of the Master, we find their true joy, true freedom true purpose, and true identity. Jesus Christ is our Lord. To Him be all glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and forever. Amen. Stand and take our hymnals, sing 178.